0: And because we've got two Julians on the line, I don't don't know which way uh, uh, to to refer. Um, but let us say it like this: we have Julian with a black background, and Julian with a. White background other than that the two of you are very similar and so we'll talk about it in the sense of the background so one of you has a uh, uh um, almost a japanese um wall yeah okay and that will not be the bright one so uh bright julian you brought up a point about rebirth and so it's a good point to talk about Uh, just simply from that position. Now, normally, when we think of rebirth in all of its uh, connotations, we understand that one can be reborn in a woeful state, or one does not have to be born in a woeful state. The woeful states that have been traditionally known in Hinduism the buddha used those that in fact uh much of the teachings of the buddha had to do with uh the language the culture and the situations of the people of the time okay. so he had to start using the language that the people knew surprisingly enough this pali word is jati And the word jati does not mean rebirth, but the idea of rebirth is a much later concept. And it comes along with the idea of reincarnation. Now, I have asked Buddhists before, and in fact, I would put out a challenge on Reddit. Does anybody know the distinction between rebirth and reincarnation? Mm -hmm. because it takes a lot of digging around to figure out what the differences are, and we can actually come up with differences that are magical, and we can come up with differences that are real, in the sense that reincarnation in all of its forms is generally referred to as magical. And that uh, uh, there has been no evidence The example would be in, um, let us call it in India, that everybody's out looking for evidence of reincarnation to where in uh, the West, everyone is out looking for evidence of God. And no team has come up with any evidence of reincarnation, just like no team has ever come up with evidence of God. That's an important point. No evidence.
1: Well, there's evidence, but evidence... No,
0: there's not. There is stories. There is no actual evidence.
1: I guess it depends what your term of evidence is.
0: My evidence has got to be strong enough and hard enough to go into court. Mm -hmm. Be accepted by a judge... Uh, presented to the jury, let them take that evidence and pass it around the jurors and then put it back as Exhibit A. That's evidence. Okay. Anything else is testimony. It's not evidence. Okay. Okay? All of the evidence that we have so far is just testimony. We don't have any evidence. The testimony, in fact, is from the mother. She said that the boy could sing. Mm. Okay. Uh, But we don't... If you've got a film of a child reciting something, but you don't have the evidence of where he got that. So any evidence of where he got that is your mere testimony. It's not real. So let's look at, in fact... These four woeful states that is used in both Buddhism and in Hinduism. Sorry, uh, Damato, are
2: you, are you saying woeful or wokeful?
0: Woeful, like, like in sorrow? ugly, like okay. in sorrow, like in hell, is a woeful state. Gotcha. Hell itself is a woeful state. Another woeful state is called the preta. Now, the word preta. Uh, is the Pali word that is referred to as hungry ghost and we have a lot of testimony about ghost we have haunted castles we have haunted museums we have uh, uh, haunted uh, uh, concentration camps there's all kinds of spooky places and we have a lot of testimony about uh, ghost now Here's something very interesting. There has been long series of documentaries, some of them on History Channel, some of them on TLC, other things like that, to where they have one story after another to where these um, film crews will go into these spooky haunted places, set up all of their equipment, and always come away disappointed because they got no evidence but they sure got a story that they can publish and get some money out of hmm. and so they still go from one haunted place to the next to the next setting up all their equipment and getting something but not being able to prove anything but the hungry ghost actually has a quality to it that we should look at because it's got a, a point to it um Let's use the um, the movie. uh, uh, Actually, it was a series of movies called The Pirates of the Caribbean. Do you know these these movies? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, And in one of the movies, uh, all of the dead uh, ghosts uh, were uh, eating and drinking, but as they were eat as they were drinking all of the stuff that they were drinking in this movie just ran out through their bones and landed on the ground, right? Leaving them completely starving because they got no nourishment. This is the whole quality of a ghost is, is that he cannot be filled. So the hungry ghost then is depicted in the in the old suttas uh, or uh, in graphics when people are drawing pictures of it is like a huge pot with a very very small opening or a small mouth and that uh, this state is basically meaning that no matter how much or how little we want we do not get satisfied Hmm. just like in anger anger is a hell state in the sense that it's a state of mind or being that we desperately want out of we do not like it Another example of hell would be in a state of anxiety. The next one would be uh, what is normally referred to as the woeful state of being a dumb animal. Now, a lot of people think about worms and cockroaches and stuff like that. But basically what we're looking at is draft animals. Donkeys, horses, mules. Oxen, those which can be put to work. Because that's the kind of animal state that humans wind up in, is doing what they're told to do. It's actually an example of the herding mentality of going along to get along. That we do what we're told to do without getting any benefit out of it. This is what we mean by a dumb animal. The dumb animal does the work, but he gets no benefit from it. Okay. All right. So the, uh, the dumb animal state, then, is like a child going to school. The child says, learn your ABCs. And the child says, why? And the answer to it is, is that you've got to have this for later. You've got to learn it. You're going to need this later. You've got to learn your ABCs. You've got to learn your 1-2-3s. You've got to learn to read. You've got to learn to do math. Well, when the kid learns to do math, what does he do then? He doesn't get any benefit. It's just now he's got to read. Now that he learns how to read, he's got to read history, and he's got to read, and he's got to read. What's the benefit of the reading? Well, you'll need it later. You've got to get an education, and so find a guy, graduates from college, doing what he's been told to do, he's got no reward, and so. What is the reward for going to college? He gets a degree. What's the value of the degree? Now he can get a job. He's got more work to do and Mm -hmm. he still gets no benefit out of it. He's told "Oh, if you get a job, you can get a house, you can get a wife, you can get a car, you can get all of these material possessions. He gets those things, but he still gets no real value, no reward. And he winds up in his late forties in a midlife crisis. Because he's always gone along to get along. He's always done what he was told to do. He was always promised to get the value of his own labor. And he gets always screwed. Just like the horse. The horse is in the pasture. The horse loves the pasture. He's got all kinds of nice things to eat and grass to lay in and run around in. But now he's hooked to a plow. And the horse has got to plow that field when he's, in fact, destroying his own paradise. Mm. But he's forced to do the work. This is what is meant by the humans. When we are reborn as animals, that means we are put to work for someone else's value, and we do not get the value of our own reward. An okay. example of that is capitalism. Capitalism is built upon this. Capitalism is exactly the the uh, uh, the laborer is hired not for his labor, but only for a portion of it. In other words, when that laborer, and in fact a slave, gets almost nothing for the value of his work, mm-hmm. but most laborers they only get a portion. And the boss, the guy who, for instance, the guys who's laboring in the field, the boss is the one who gets all of the, uh, uh, the bounty from the harvest. He owns it, and the laborers only get a day's pay for today, right? If, sick- in fact, it, it was a cooperative, then everyone would share in the value. But our society is set up to one person to abuse another by taking part of his value away from him.
1: Are so, so are you saying, you're saying that, so that's that process of rebirth? Is this, you're describing that, and then this is so No, right
0: now I'm just describing the woeful states. We'll get into okay. how people are reborn there in a moment. Okay, okay. Okay, we've covered three of the four woeful states. The other woeful state is often referred to, uh, or the name of them is the Ashura. And what the Ashura means, basically you can say you use the word A is an opposite, and they're not sure. They're unsure of themselves. Uh, the Asuras are very much like the Titans in the Greek mythology, the warriors, the heavenly warriors, except that the Titans are in a position that they can't go to war. They're warriors. They're in battle gear, but they're afraid to go to battle because they're afraid to lose because anybody that they were war with will beat the tar out of them. This is a low level of, of heaven. Okay. So how does uh, the human would be like the little boy who is dressed as a tree going out on stage and uh, for the uh, end of the season's pageant. And he's got only one line. And that one line is I'm a tree. But when it's time for him to say that line, he freezes in fear, he's got stage fright, and he cannot perform. But look, he's all dressed up as a tree, and all he's got to say is, I am a tree, and he can't get it out. Right? All dressed up and no place to go. That's what the assurers are. These are the four woeful states that we have that we can wind up in. How do we get into these states? We are reborn in them, and the teachings of Paticca Samapada actually talk about this, that in the later stages of Paticca Samapada, when it goes, basically we'll talk about the last six right now, and Pagor the first six. The first thing is, is that we have a feeling, that feeling comes into... I like it or I don't like it. If that feeling is unwise, then that feeling will lead into uh, clinging. Now, uh, the words are Vedana, Tanha, Upadana. The word Vedana means feeling. The feeling is I like it. The ved of uh, the uh, Tanha means I want it. I like it. I want it, and I want it leads to I've got to have it. Well, there's your hungry ghost right there. I gotta have it, and I don't have it. I'm hungry. Mm. I'm hungry for something that I want, and I don't have it. Is like the ghost who it can't be filled. The way that we like to talk about that is is that we say the the line of the hungry ghost. His uh, his motto is. I can't get no satisfaction. Or another way of looking at it is um, I want it, but I can't get it. This is a way of saying it is life sucks because I can't get what I want. Life sucks because we suck. We're trying to suck things. We're trying to suck it in through a tiny little straw, and that Mercedes just won't quite fit through that straw. But I keep sucking on it and sucking on it. Maybe I'll get that Mercedes out of that straw. Okay? This is the state of being a hungry ghost, of wanting things we don't have. And life sucks because we suck on things that we want. Hmm. A very, very clear example of that is the meditator who wants enlightenment. He doesn't have it, does he? Not when he wants it. If he wants it, he's in a state of misery. He's in a state of dissatisfaction. He wants something he doesn't have. Is, is
1: there, so, is there a, a distinction between wanting it and cultivating a desire? ...desire for it, you know, like as as fuel for the
0: path? You do not have to cultivate desire. Okay. Desire is automatically unwholesome, and that's the easy. We have been cultivating unwholesome for our whole lives. Now it's time to cultivate the wholesome. And to cultivate the wholesome means to come out of our desire.
1: Isn't there the, the, the desire to cultivate wholesome attitude... What's what's the motivation? I'm not. I'm just. I'm just trying to correct this in my thinking.
0: Okay, I would go so far as to say that um, the the catch twenty two or the confusion that you're in is the primary confusion. That's the primary doubt. Okay, and it, we do get into that state through the doubt, and so we can go off into. Sc- and discover doubt for right now but let's stay in in this uh, uh, at part of the discussion of how we wind up in woeful states because we wind up in wholesome unwholesome states because we want things okay so basically what we need to do is to cultivate not wanting things okay to be cultivating satisfaction which means to cultivate, I'm okay like it is. Okay. If but you cultivate the desire for something you don't have, now all you have is the desire for something you don't have. I
2: think what, uh, I, I kind of have a similar question to uh, what Julian was asking, which is, doesn't there need to be some uh, desire there for us to uh, continue on, like, the Eightfold path? I mean, don't we have to desire uh, the, the change fruits of it?
0: the word from desire into motivation.
2: Okay.
0: Okay. And it's when you see things as painful, you would be automatically motivated to get rid of it. Yeah,
2: but it, and then isn't that
0: aversion? Uh, Aversion is when you have it and you can't get rid of it. So, so you're
1: saying it's like sort of like that's a natural... That's the same
0: thing as the uh, the motivation, or let us... Excuse me. When we want things we don't have, that's a form of suffering, just like wanting to get rid of things that we have to put up with. Mm-hmm. It's the same uh, feeling. And that is dukkha. Mm. <coughs> so, the w- Wait a minute, wait a minute, okay. wait a minute. That is dukkha. The wanting what we don't have and the having to put up with that which we don't like. That's the dukkha. That's what winds us up in the unwholesome state. Okay. okay. Is is the wanting things that we don't have. So the motivation comes from seeing that, oh, if I want something I don't have, I wind up in that woeful state of a hungry ghost. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about now that motivation is coming from wisdom, not from desire. Okay. And that's one of the major problems that students have with their practice of meditation is because they're trying to get rid of something they have to deal with, and they don't like it, and so they're in a state of unhappiness, wanting something that they don't have, enlightenment, and so they're being dissatisfied. What we have to cultivate instead is to cultivate satisfaction, that I'm okay right now, whether that there thing is that I uh, don't like is there or not, I don't have to have aversion for it in the sense of wanting to get rid of it and can't. Mm-hmm. Nor is there the situation that I want things that I don't have and I can say, okay, but I don't have it and that's okay. So you're talking about cultivating the desire to get rid of something when in fact we're talking about, no. No. Don't cultivate the desire to get rid of it. That's just more desire. That's just making things worse. Mm. What we want to cultivate is things are okay the way that they are right now.
1: Yes. The w- the way I see it, um, thank you for clarifying that, um, is it's sort of like as I'm moving on the path, It's uh, it, it is this like driving force that's encouraging and encouraging to continue as the joy and peace and stability of mind is it starts to become more and more apparent and in my the way i see it is like oh i'm gaining this something that's that's <laughs> propelling me to continue whatever i call that i'm not sure what word would be appropriate but there's something like that's that's there and it feels good it feels like
0: um okay Well, let's let's look at it from this perspective. Um, Imagine that you were standing on a road and a big Mack truck was barreling down upon you, a big lorry. Okay. There's three things to do. Once you see it, you can see it coming. That's the wake up, we woke up, we heard it, we looked, we saw it, we can see what it's doing. We have three possibilities. One is we can stand in the road and let it run over us. The second thing we can do is step out of the way and let it pass. The third thing we can do is pull a Popeye, stand in the road, put our arm out and demand that the truck stop. And eat some spinach. And and eat some spinach, right. And get run over anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is actually three ways of practicing meditation. And you can see that that Mack truck that's bearing down on us is hindrances. Now, one way of practicing is called choiceless awareness. Just be aware of what's going on in the mind without making any changes to it. Just let it run over us. Just watch what's going on. This is a form of meditation. Choices awareness taught very often. Some people who are practicing the Mahasi method will practice it that way. In the sense of note what's going on and then keep noting it and keep noting it. Ere how much suffering or dukkha it is. Just keep noting it. You'll eventually understand it. All right. That's not the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha's teaching is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. See the Dukkha and get out of the way right then. Don't just let it run over you over and over again. uh, So letting it run over us is like the wrong uh, or not enough right effort. We're not putting in enough effort to get out of the way. But the other uh, extreme is to put up in... It is to put up too much effort to work and to strain wanting things we don't have. And so we keep wanting and we keep wanting and we keep working at it. And this is a form of meditation, which oftentimes also doesn't rid us of the hindrances. Now, instead of just letting whatever hindrances there are that arise uh, wash over us, now it's the hindrance of wanting things we don't have. And so we strain and we fight and we work and we uh, give ourselves headaches and we give ourselves neck tension and, a, and the knees hurt. And we keep meditating because we want something that we don't have. But the correct way of practice is to note things well and then let them pass. In other words, to step out of the way of the hindrances, to get the mind cleaned out of the things that we want so that we can be satisfied with the way things are now, that we want to cultivate satisfaction. We want to cultivate joy. How can we cultivate satisfaction if we're not even practicing satisfaction? How can we get satisfaction by wanting satisfaction. Wanting satisfaction is unsatisfying. I don't have satisfaction. I'm unsatisfied because I don't have satisfaction. An example of that then would be someone wants to play the piano. They want to learn to play the piano. They buy a piano, they buy a bunch of piano books. They even hire a teacher and they go to their first lesson and then after their first lesson they don't practice the piano at all they read books then they go back to the piano lesson next week if they're not practicing the piano do you think they are going to learn to play the piano Mm, no if he's practicing the piano then he's got a chance of learning the piano right Mm all right so now let's look at satisfaction like that if you don't practice satisfaction how are you going to learn to make it a skill you won't you won't it'll be a <laughs> yeah you won't you won't exactly so this is where satisfaction comes into practice in fact it is step uh, six of anapanasati And that all of these steps of Anapanasati have the verb to train. To train one's mind in satisfaction while breathing in. And to train in satisfaction while we breathe out. Every step of Anapanasati has that breathing in. it. As you breathe in, you breathe in satisfaction. And as you breathe out, you breathe out satisfaction this is the way to practice how do we get ourselves into the state of satisfaction is by gladdening the mind by taking the mind out of the state that it was in which was standing in the middle of the road letting the hindrances run over us and so we step out of the road the stepping out of the road is one's right effort and that right effort has to do with Gladdening the mind, the way that the Buddha started this. In fact, you could say that one of the lynchpins, or one of the things that holds, um, instead of lynchpin, uses the word key. That one of the keys that unlocked the entire teachings of the Buddha for the Buddha was this statement: "Aha, I see you, Myra." What he did when he said, aha, I see you, Mara, was is that he actually was able to pull his mind out of Mara. So, uh, looking at the way that I'm holding my hands here, this left hand is like the Mara, and we'll use the example of anger. And then this is me. And so when I say I am angry, that means the anger is taken over. The anger is overwhelming. The anger has got me. But then I wake up. And the wake up is, wait a minute. Aha, I see you, anger. And now we've made a disassociation. Now I am not the anger. I'm looking at it instead. Mm -hmm. Aha, I see you. That's the wake up call. Because before that, we are just being run over by the hindrance. We're in it. We're stuck in it. We are, in fact, that hindrance. I am sad. I am angry. I am my thoughts. Whatever the thoughts are, they're mine, they're me. I am my thoughts. This whole thing that the Buddha is talking about is, no, you are not your thoughts. No, you are not your feelings. Wake up and take a look to recognize you are not your feelings and by doing so that means that you can feel the way you want to feel most people think that oh, uh, I'm my personality and I'm fixed and I can't change and I've got my feelings and my feelings are my feelings oh no they're just feelings they're not yours and you can change them if you have the skills one of the ways of saying it is, is that we spent our whole lives talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good. When do we do that? Whenever we remember to. Whenever we remember to feel good, we can feel good. What I mean by feeling good is to gladden the mind and then to come to that state of satisfaction. And we want to cultivate that satisfaction. I feel good as I breathe in. I feel okay as I breathe out. I breathe in nice, good air. And I exhaust the old poison. And here I am, okay. Everything is all right. I'm satisfied with this moment. That's the feeling that needs to be cultivated. Why? Because the old cultivation would be... I'm not satisfied, I want something. And because I want something that I don't have, I've now re- been reborn into the state of hell or in the state of the uh, Aprita I want something like a ghost who cannot be filled. But it's an attitude. And the attitude change will be the attitude of I can, in fact, Uh, become satisfied. So we can look at it from this perspective, that the ones who want things are uh, dissatisfied. We feel like a loser. We feel like an underdog. We feel like that we need help. We have doubt about, can I do it? We have doubt about, who can I get to get this fixed? We have doubts about, uh, do I have the right tools and all of that? But when we start eradicating these doubts, that means that in this state, the mind is comfortable. It's, um, the Thai word is sabai. We can use words like hunky-dory. Everything is okay. Everything not is going to be all right. Everything is already all right. This is the feeling to be cultivated. So we can say that you have unhappy feelings or one kind of feelings, and there's only a few of them. There's like anger, fear, sadness, grief, frustration, those kind of feelings. And then on the other hand, we have uh, the feelings not of fear, but of safety, security, satisfaction, contentment, and also the attitude change of being in a state of uh, the winner, being successful. If you have those feelings, then those are different kinds of feelings than we have, and we normally think that the world out there is what makes me feel the way that I feel. But in fact, no, we manufacture these feelings according to uh, the way that we want to but normally our thought systems keep us in the habit of feeling bad but you have the opportunity when you remember to feel good that you in fact can feel the way you want to feel mm-hmm. and so we begin to feel the way we want to feel we begin to cultivate being satisfied So, if we are, in fact, in a state of satisfaction, then we're not reborn in one of these woeful states. Mm-hmm. These woeful states are how we're, how the mind gets reborn into um, a self that's selfish. For instance, if you're comfortable and content and happy with what things are going on, then you will also have a sense of generosity. But if in fact we don't have that, if we're the other end where we have fear, anger, frustration. We feel like we need something that we don't have. We feel inadequate. So here's an example then. Someone comes, let us say your brother comes and wants to borrow money. Let's say he wants to borrow a substantial amount, not big, say five hundred dollars. If you are already in a state of comfortable, easy easygoing, feeling everything is all right, then the likelihood is, is that you'll give him the money that he's asking for, and everybody is happy. He's happy, and you feel happy because you made him happy, and you're generous, and all things are good. But on another occasion, he comes and asks for money, and the thought says, I need that money. I need I'm in a state of hungry ghost and how dare him to come ask for me for my money Right, and so we tell him no he's unhappy and disappointed and we are unhappy and disappointed because we acted selfishly but if in fact we have a feeling of satisfaction we have a feeling of uh, joy Security, then when he comes to borrow five hundred dollars, he says, sure, no problem. Because it's not a problem. And it's not a matter of the five hundred, it's a matter of your attitude. Correct. The attitude I need that money means that I have been reborn as a hungry ghost. I've got all I need, I'm satisfied, I'm complete, I'm okay. That means that I'm now not selfish. So this is where that self comes in, that when we were reborn as the hungry ghost, that means we have been reborn into a state of selfishness. Another example of that is fear, fear of performance. This happens on a regular basis uh, with many people, let us say that you're sitting in your office and the boss comes in. And we get tongue-tied. We don't know the answer. We become confused. This is the state of uh, the asura. is when we're unsure of ourselves. We're, we're not ready, uh, or at least we tell ourselves that we're not ready. Mm-hmm. For in fact, we may be ready altogether. So uh, in that sense, I would say, okay, here's how we would handle that. When you see the boss coming, you can get on guard. You can take a few deep breaths and say, wow, I'm going to be able to handle this situation very well. And I'm not afraid when the boss comes in. And so when he asks a question, I can give him the answer because I'm not afraid. Mm-hmm. Okay. So these are the way that we begin to see, oh, I do not have to be reborn in that fear. I don't have to be reborn into that state of want. I don't have to be reborn into that animal state of going along to get along, to do what I'm told to do. That, in fact, I can begin to enjoy my life. So I can enjoy when the boss comes in, even if he's piling more work on. If I don't like the work, I'm a dumb animal. If I am joyful about the work, then I can get her done with no problem. It really is a matter of attitude. And when we have the wrong attitude, that means that we're going from feeling to grasping to clinging. And when, we be, when we're into that state of clinging, that is the becoming in, or the going into that woeful state. And it's also the creation of the self. So the self is what's in that woeful state. When we're not in a woeful state, there's no selfishness there. We become altruistic. And so that's Dukkha. Mm-hmm. This, by the way, is what we've been talking about is the later stages of the teaching called Paticca samuppada Have you heard that term? It's also known as dependent origination. Paticca samuppada actually is an exposition of or a thorough de, um, uh, unpacking of the second noble truth. What is actually the cause of suffering? The cause of suffering in the second noble truth is listed as greed, ill will, and delusion. Many people who have only a little bit of Buddhism say that this cause of suffering is... Uh, is, is greed or desire. But that's not the whole story. That in fact, that's so much of uh, not the whole story that it's actually just the wrong answer. Because the real issue of the second noble truth is about ignorance or de- delusion. It's not about the, the greed or the wanting. Because we can actually have wise wanting. One of the ways of having wise wanting, or let us call it using the word attachment. Now, in the Theravada, we normally use the word clinging in English, and the Pali word is upadana. Uh, But we know for sure that there are only four modes of clinging. There are only four uh, one mode of clinging is clinging to the self or selfishness, which also has to do with with that fear of the assurance. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to protect the self. Another mode of clinging is to material goods. This is the preta, wanting things that we don't have, even if it's a spiritual materialism, wanting enlightenment. Or wanting past life experiences. It's still wanting things. Grasping and clinging. Giving rise to the hungry ghost. The next one is attachment to rights, rules, and rituals. Attachments to rights, rules, and rituals. What the Buddha refers to in Nepali as sila Bhatta Paramasa. You can see the word sila right there. Is going along to get along. We follow the rules in order to avoid punishment but we don't get any reward so we are born then as hungry excuse me as draft animals doing what we're told to do without getting the reward like the donkey you know they have the picture of the donkey that's got a stick uh, uh that's got a string and a, and a carrot and so as the donkey is pulling the cart along he's just all just out of reach of that carrot. But he never keeps, even though he keeps walking towards that carrot, he never gets it. Mm-hmm. But if he stops altogether, then he's going to get the stick. Well, that carrot and stick is why we have an industrial society. It's because all of the workers are these dumb animals chasing after a carrot they never get, afraid that they'll get beaten if they don't work. They have phrases like you don't work, you don't eat. Have you ever heard that? Guess what? It's not true. It's not. You can work and starve. (laughs) Working doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to eat. And it's also not true that if you don't work, you will starve. Because There's all kinds of ways of getting food without working. And so working is a lie. And it's designed to keep the individuals in that state of hungry ghost to do what you're told to do. And our whole society is built on that. Not just business, but government, education, and religions are all built upon uh that that quality of they want you to want them. They want you to want them. Mm-hmm. If you don't want them, then you don't have much of a relationship to them. This is the sila paramasa, which is deeply buried inside the human psyche. In fact it comes out of the uh the nesting instinct. That If you're in the nest, you got to behave in the nest if, you're, if you want to stay in the nest. The same thing is true with the herding of animals. In fact, the, the, the story I like is uh, um, uh, the sheepdog and the sheep. Why? Because the sheepdog completely relies upon the, uh, the sheep acting as a herd. They herd together. They do what they're told to do. The barking dog is there barking, and all the sheep collect together and do what they're told to do, like go through that gate. The dog will go here, and he'll go there, and he'll circle them around to where he gets them to go. Can you imagine what it would be like if a few of those old sheep, each one of them bigger than that dog, turned to his buddy and says, Hey, you know, the three of us are bigger than that dog. Why don't we go surround him? Tell him a few things. That way, everybody else in our herd can go about and do what they want to do. They don't have to herd together. Mm-hmm. But you see, sheep are stupid. They don't know about that barking dog. It's just a barking dog. It's not really that dangerous. You're a human, though. You can recognize that that barking dog of society has no power over you, unless you operate stupidly. If you operate ...in ignorance... ...if you're not looking at what's going on... ...so the whole teachings of the Buddha... then ...can be wrapped around that idea... ...of wake up... ...look at what's going on... ...to recognize that things are not as dangerous... ...as we thought they were...
1: ...this ties so into... She... ...pardon? ...oh, I was going to say... ...this ties directly into right view, right?
0: ...yes, it does... ...yes, it's like the... the... keep ...keep looking, keep investigating... ...keep noticing that in fact you're not dangerous keep investigating keep noting that you're okay like you are that you're satisfactory just like you are everything is satisfying you don't need enlightenment to be okay you can be okay right now without it and if you want it you will be reborn into that hungry ghost that wants something he can't have If you are not watchful, then your uh, fear will drive you into doing things that are not productive. You'll become a stupid animal. If we're not mindful, then when we don't like something, it will own us. It will will take us into prison. Mm -hmm. Like hell. Hell is nothing but a prison. Bhikkhu Buddha das actually talks about the prison of the mind. Actually, he talks about it as the prison of life itself. But really, it's not life that's the prison. It's that we put ourselves in prison because we confine ourselves, we box ourselves in through feelings. Without recognizing that we, in fact, have power over our feelings. You can feel the way that you want to feel. You talked yourself all of these years because of listening to society and other adults who had already gone through this uh, uh, learning process. And so you, too, go through the learning process of feeling bad by talking yourself into it. Okay. If you can talk to yourself into feeling bad, you can talk yourself into feeling good again. But not by wanting to feel good. Feeling bad and wanting to feel good is just more bad feeling. Mm -hmm. We actually have to make that change to come out of our bad feelings and say, actually, this is okay. Actually, we have everything that we need. Everything is already hunky-dory. Everything is satisfactory like it is. There is actually no work that needs to be done because mm-hmm. I'm not starving right now. I'm subai, I'm okay. Therefore I don't have to work. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's the mentality, okay? So everybody's out there working. Believe me, you've been working far more than you can eat.
2: <laughs>
0: okay. So why not start enjoying your life instead of living our lives in these woeful states of being afraid, afraid of the boss, afraid of uh, uh, performance anxiety, is an example. There's all kinds of places where we fail to be human because uh, of our fear. Mm-hmm. Where In fact, we're already ready. We're ready for battle. We're ready for that conversation with, the, uh, uh, with our boss, even if we don't have the answer that we know where he's looking for because I don't know is actually a satisfactory answer okay
1: so is this um this is what you describe as this is the literal uh so I'm just seeing how this tied into the rebirth and so every moment we're setting up conditions for rebirth but that that is a sort of Entering into or being born into a state that you've described as the was it the three uh, or four four unwholesome unwholesome Mm -hmm. states that that are
0: woeful states
1: woeful states, Um,
0: and the unwholesome will take us to the woeful. Okay, that's why we call them unwholesome.
1: So the statement where we're reborn every instant or every moment has some validity to it. So this moment and then this moment. I was born again into
0: a new state okay so you've probably heard of the three watches of the night and the second watch of the night is the watching of the coming and goings of beings mm-hmm. have you heard that no i haven't heard of that okay uh the first watch of the night is to see how oneself is reborn into this state and that state and and whatnot like this the second watch of the night is referred to as the coming and goings of beings and that many people with magical thinking will say that means that the buddha can see the past lives and and the comings and he's born here and he dies and then he's born here and he dies and he's born here and he dies in a lifetime okay Mm -hmm. So, born here and he dies, born here and he dies, born here and he dies, it takes about 300 years or more. Uh-huh. Actually, he's born here and he dies, and born here and he dies, and born here and he dies, it may not take 300 years, it may take 30 seconds. Hmm. That's the way to look at rebirth, is, is that we are, in fact, reborn as a priest in this moment. We're reborn as a hell creature the next moment. A few minutes after that, we're reborn as a stupid animal doing what we're told to do. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so that's the coming and going of the being. The being is the one who is being angry, the one who is being um, uh, in a state of want, Mm the one who. Being in a state of fear, so fearful that he can't act. Yes. All right, so that's the coming and goings of the beings, is because each one of us can be something for a short period of time. But we're not being something for our whole lifetime. That, in fact, who you were when you were six years old, you may have a few memories of when you were six, but you're nothing like what you were when you were six years old. Everything is different. You're a completely different human being. An example of that is, is that the six-year-old that you were, if, you, if that kid was brought into court and he was put on the witness stand and testified, and then they dismissed him, and then they say, oh, wait a minute, we need you to retestify, but this time you come in as the adult you are today, everybody's going to know, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute, that's not the same person. The six-year-old is not the same person as that adult. But we, in our own minds, get confused about that. And we will say things like, when I was six.
1: Yeah, it's... Uh, when it's I the, was
0: 12. And it wasn't you at all, not the you that's I right now.
1: It's like we, we, we look, like we have a, a bunch of memories, and we have to look at the memories. And from that, we then make up a
0: imagination that that this is what i am and and we add the secret magical ingredient that Which, brings it to life what is that secret magical ingredient
1: itself yeah, me
0: yeah the self exactly until that is just an old memory mm. so the better thing to do is just to leave that as an old memory and even better still don't even leave it as an old memory just forget about it
1: Mm-hmm.
0: that's the way is just to forget about the past because all this matters for us right now is can i be satisfied in this present moment okay can i be here now now yeah. let's bring just a little bit to uh in uh to this let's let's use some actual science some physics just to to polish things off a bit When we think of being reborn in the sense of uh, reincarnation or in the sense of the Christians, after they die, they go to heaven, that indicates that there is something extra, something that is not normal part of our existence. Therefore, they have a thing that is not really a self in the sense of being selfish. But they have an idea that the self is so strong that it can survive death. It is so powerful that it is, in fact, permanent. But it is not that powerful because it, in fact, is a toy of some common machine in the sky or some god. In fact, the common machine in the sky only is um, uh, a common machine in the sky with the label. And when you put a label on it, it becomes god but it's still just a common machine. So let's look at that common machine later, but first let's look at the soul itself. Um, We know about physics in the sense that there are four primary forces in physics. These forces have an underlying conditionality. In other words, the, um, the law of cause and effect or conditionality means that these four forces of nature We'll we'll contact and and work together and interfere. What are the forces of nature? Number one, gravity. Why do we call that number one? Because that's the first one that we can actually recognize. Things fall down. All right. Gravity is everywhere. It's a force of nature. There is nothing that can fall down that won't fall down. Gravity knows about everything. It always is powerful. It's so powerful that look what they have to do to a rocket to get it to leave the Earth. So gravity is really all powerful. Mm. Gravity is the, is the force behind everything that we have to do about automobiles and jet planes and flying and all of our technology of transportation Has to do overcoming gravity. So that's how powerful a force it is. It's all and it's everywhere. It's throughout the entire universe. In that respect, gravity is a god because it's all powerful, it's all knowing, and it's everywhere. Mm. All right? Gravity, that's a god. How, how is it all-knowing? May knowing? you be well, Coon Gravity. <laughs> May you how, be happy. <laughs>
2: how is gravity all-knowing?
0: Because you can't get away from it. It knows you. If you step and tumble, it will okay. make you fall. It Not only that, but it's waiting there gleefully to, for you to fall down. It'll grab you if you make a mistake. It knows more about you than you do. Sure. Okay. Okay? Don't nobody escape gravity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. No one can hide from it. That's why it's all... All right, so let's look at the other three because they're very similar. The next one along the line is called the electromagnetic force, which gives us um, a fire. It gives us... Um, because of the the movement of molecules this is light Um, it gives us uh, movement Uh, the the magnetic force you know within a motor that you can create electricity you can also use electricity to create magnetism there and it was quite a thing for them to put together electromagnetic force and 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 get it Bohr's Law, and all kinds of things uh, they have come to understand because of this law of electromagnetic. But the human body absolutely depends upon this force. The next one, though, at a very deeper level is called, uh, there are two forces below that. One is called the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force. What is the strong nuclear force is what keeps the nucleus of an atom together they refer to this stuff as gluons because you know automatically from uh your a bit of understanding about electromagnetic forces that um like objects repel each other and opposite particles attract right Mm -hmm. that's how a bar magnet is is because you've got a pole there And that the right and the left pole, and, excuse me, the north pole and the south pole and all of that kind of stuff. So if that's true, then how can a whole group of, let us say for a uranium atom of 232 particles in there, about a balance of uh, neutrons and protons. But how do all of those protons get stuck together? and you also know that in a nuclear power if you can go in with with something to bust up the nucleus of that uh uranium atom great energy will be expanded right so that means that that energy or that force is within the nucleus of that um uranium atom great force is there that strong nuclear force but then there is a weaker nuclear force that keeps the electrons in orbit, and when those Mm -hmm. electrons then are kicked out of orbit, now they're free-floating individuals that can go places. These are the four forces of nature. Anything that we have to do with religion has to succumb to these four forces of nature that we know. All right, which means that if there's a soul, that soul will have to abide by these four forces of nature. This is both energy and matter. E equals MC squared, and we know now that there is nothing else around but energy and matter. Now, the religious will talk about, well, God is, uh, is in fact beyond space and beyond time. You've heard this, no doubt, right? Well, if God is beyond space, how far is it to the edge of space? How far is it out there? Look what happens to light as it travels further further and further distant. It takes longer and longer and longer. So if God is beyond space, that means that any prayers that people will pray, it'll take hundreds of millions of billions of years to get to a, a God that is beyond space makes no sense at all to say that God is beyond space and time no what we mean by then God is not an actual force of nature but rather the interactions in the way that these forces of nature interplay with each other and God himself is nothing but a concept that humans have come up with to try to make sense out of the actual forces of nature yeah
1: um so I'm not too... I agree. I I, um, I, I should have rejected that concept entirely, so, um, but the thing I'm interested in is I, I know that this destination or destination that's described with Buddhism is said to be outside of the the, the five aggregates, or it's at least it's the recognition of these five aggregates as, as being not-self, anatta, okay. and this state, if you can even call it that, is outside of these, right? And so would you would you then say that at least the state that the Buddha describes is the realization of something outside perhaps, of time and space?
0: Perhaps you're misunderstanding it in the sense that yes, the five aggregates, in, in fact, is really important, and that's one of the talks that we'll have later, okay. is to talk about each one of these aggregates is not self. Yes. And that means that then the combination of these aggregates which are actually part of the four forces of nature that we've just talked about, is not self. So where does the self come from? The self comes from the the interaction, the combination, or let us call it the process. So the self is the result of a process. Mm-hmm. So that we go from I like it, to I want it, to I've got to have it, and then we're reborn as the self, and so this self comes and goes. Just okay. like I was saying, the coming and going of being, sometimes you're selfish, sometimes you're not. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. But when we, when there is a self, we can see that, but when there's no self, it's hard to see that. This is emptiness. When we're empty of self, it's hard to see things that are not there. It's really easy to see the things that are there, but it's not easy to see the things that are not there until we recognize the distinction between when they're there and when they're not there, and we can begin to see that distinction between when they're there and when they're not there. But the self is not there all the time. Not the self that we're talking about in uh, the five aggregates. And by the way, you can think of the five aggregates as personality. The sum total of your personality is your body, your feelings, the way you perceive things, all of your uh, uh, old memories, and your consciousness. You put those things together, and that's the sum total of a human being, but there is no self there. The self comes in the attitude that that human being comes up with. Okay. All right. But the real soul that we're talking about that people think exist really doesn't. If we go back to physics, we can understand that, for instance, electrons, there's only four qualities that an electron has. And that has to do with spin and things like that. But um, the question that the uh, the scientists way back when were asking themselves is that if you've got an electric wire and you put a charge on it, or you put an electron in this end of the wire, does the electron that comes out of this end of the wire, is it the same electron as the one that we put in to this end of the wire? Actually, the answer is twofold. One is, is that it's irrelevant. And number two, it's irrelevant because we cannot make a distinction that the electrons are not unique. Mm. Therefore, there is no way to tell which electron is coming in and coming and going. We don't know that because they're indistinguishable. That's an important point, that if we cannot distinguish one electron from another, then that means that we cannot isolate any particular electron to do any particular research with it, because all the electrons are alike. Mm. So, with that, we can also understand that each individual um, hydrogen molecule has exactly the same things. It's got one proton and one electron, which means that every hydrogen atom is completely... Uh, substitutable for any other hydrogen atom and no human has the power to distinguish the two that in fact that's true with all of physics that every uh, element is elemental in the sense of electrons protons and neutrons with even the protons and the neutrons break down to up and down quarks and so actually things are very very simple at that particle physical level is only things get complicated when they get into larger structures. An example of that would be that some molecules are very, very complicated, very complex, especially when we get into biological. In fact, one kind of molecule, DNA, actually is sophisticated and complicated enough to give uniqueness to an individual. Except one problem with DNA. It's not permanent. It was put together, and it breaks apart. But even in sex, when uh, a child is born, that DNA unravels, and half of the DNA for the dad and half the DNA from the mom, and it comes together. And if you die and the worms eat your body, the worm is not going to be eating and having human DNA. It's going to have worm DNA. hmm Your DNA does not carry on after you're dead. There is nothing that does. Everything about you is down. Now, let's look at it from this perspective. Anything that would be a soul or could be a soul has to be unique in the sense that it's your soul. Mm -hmm. Imagine that 100 people were on a bus and it went over the bridge and everybody died within a, a second or two. Or, how about in Hiroshima, they, uh, the Americans threw that bomb in the air. It exploded at 15,000 feet. And within a very, very short time, 100,000 people were dead. What is the comma machine or God going to do with 100,000? I mean, you can't just say, well, uh, I can't tell the difference between Aunt Susie and Billy over here. So I'm going to say, I'm going to give the comma to Billy that belonged to Susie.
2: Mm, okay.
0: Okay? We have to have a unique soul. And yet, physics does not allow, modern physics proves, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there is no possibility for a soul that is strong enough to survive death, and yet complicated enough to be identifiable, to be identified.
1: Could I? Um, So, one of the things that is arising is the... So... Let's assume maybe we don't understand the way uh, energy is transferred. Um, say through the death process. Is if if would it be okay to say um, there's still even if there were to be an energetic continuation of some conscious agent, it's still it's still anatta, it's still not self. So the way I see it is. That soul, if it were if there were to be one, I, I'm not sure science has the means to completely verifiably show that there's no energetic continuation. But even if there is an energetic continuation, it's no different than this continuation of this moment now than ten minutes ago. It's still a part of this process.
0: Uh-huh. My answer to that is that your doubt and your hope are not as strong as our physics. Okay. And yet that all, that's all you have to offer, is maybe the possibility, maybe they haven't figured it out yet. You're holding out and hoping for something that you have no evidence for.
1: Oh, I'm not hoping. I'm just wanting to get to the crux of yes, it. Yes, you are. It's, It's the... <laughs> maybe
0: not strong.
1: It's... It's just, I don't want to uh, pick something and, and say this is what it is without the, um, I just want to know what's, re- I want to know the how reality is functioning, right? And I agree with everything you've said.
0: A lot of stuff we don't know. I'll go for that. All we right? don't know
2: anything. But I mean, we, we can just make our best guesses.
0: Yeah, okay. So let's look at it from this perspective then. And that is, is that if you hold out for a better future that you may or may not get, that while you're holding out for a better future, that means you're accepting the present moment as not satisfying. Mm. Now let's look at it from another way. And that is, is that if I care not about the deep future or the deep past, that I've given up on those possibilities. And recognize that I have this present moment that I can be happy with. Okay. And so I develop that and I become happy and wholesome and um, free from want. If I am in fact completely free from want, then the likelihood of me going and harming people or going and taking things from people or going and molesting somebody's property, his wife, then... Uh, because my mind is free, I'm, my behavior is already exemplary. So my sila is automatically okay, okay because I'm satisfied with now. If I can be satisfied with now as I go from now to now to now, gaining the seals of dealing with one now after another, then when death comes, I can deal with that now happily also. Hmm. And after I'm dead, who knows what's going to happen, but I've already, whatever I've got, if you're talking about it from the Hindu perspective, is, is that, um, that when I am reborn, it'll be reborn to my karma. Well, if I've got no karma, then how can I be reborn? Because I'm not generating any karma. Because I'm not doing anything. I'm sitting happy. Maybe that sitting happy, if I'm reborn, I'll be, be born into the state of being happy and satisfied. So why should I worry about the future? Let's worry about, not worry, but let's in fact clean up right now and get, in, get the skills of always being happy and skillful in this present moment and not mm. worry about the future.
1: I see that. I, I totally agree.
0: Yeah, it's... Because you don't know what it's going to be. We can talk about it like this. You know, the, you've ever the Boy Scouts, and you know that they have a motto, and their motto is be prepared.
1: Yeah, I was a Boy Scout, so. Uh,
0: okay, so do you know a Boy Scout knife? Um, okay.
1: I don't know if it's, there's a standard one, but I know of many.
0: Right, okay, so the, what, what's the Boy Scout knife has is he's got what the Boy Scout needs. Okay. Okay, it's got a punch it's got a bottle opener it's got a can opener it's got a blade it's got a sharp blade it's got a big blade it's got everything oh, yeah, that we need. Yeah, yeah. okay and the motto is be prepared so the thought then is that boy scout knife is your dama if you have the dama then you will be prepared for whatever the future may be
1: yeah even if it's like um even if it's just another experience in this in this life, right? It's like, um, whether it's death, whether it's a terrible experience, whether it's my mom dying, whether it's really anything, it's like, doesn't matter. It's for prepared. It's preparing mm-hmm. us for everything. It seems. Um, that's the yeah. Uh
0: huh. All right. So now let's go and go into the conversation with the Christian. And the Christian has the question is, well, what if you're wrong? What if we're right? Well, here's the point then. it was 7 billion people on the planet Earth, whenever what moment you die, how many people die at that moment? Thousands, thousands. hundreds, hundreds of people are going to die exactly the same moment that I die. That means now we're all lined up in line and at heaven's gate, right? How do we get to heaven? Let us say that there's some sort of uh, airplane, (laughs) right? Well, if my behavior is exemplary because I have my mind straightened out and I am free from dukkha to where your average Christian is still greedy, then that means that at best, even if he's going to get in heaven, he had to take a uh, uh, um, let us call it a forgiveness ticket. he doesn't really belong in heaven, but he's going to kind of get ready for uh, get in anyway. Therefore, he's got to sit in this airplane back in the um, uh, uh, um, the economy section. To where us people who have our act together, who have our minds straightened out, who are full of satisfaction and joy, and have exemplary behavior, we're going to ride in first class into the heaven uh, heavenly airplane anyway. Sure. Right? Yeah. So when we walk in to heaven, we're not walking into heaven and going into Judgment Day full of remorse full of anxiety, full of the loser, that we're in fact, we are going to walk into into the judgment day full of joy, full of um, uh, wonder, full of the lion's attitude. So when I meet God, I'm going to meet him as an equal. I'm just as good as he is, I'm just as dead as he is, and I'm just as well behaved as he is, in fact, better. I didn't do any genocide. I didn't kill thousands of Mormons. I haven't killed. I haven't caused any tsunamis. I have not done any of the terrible things that we call an act of God. Therefore, my behavior is now much, much better than God sure. Himself.
1: Sure, we can we can be on we can be on a similar page where I I disagree with the uh, anthropomorphizing of this God figure. I agree with you. I don't. Um, so. We, you can, you can always assume that that's the case here. Um, one of the questions that I think might be relevant before we wrap, I don't know what time, what time you have, but um, is the awakening of the Buddha and his recollection of incarnations that he had experienced and what your thoughts are on this and how you contextualize that.
0: Well, now you're talking about the first watch of the night. Now, think about the watches of the night is like this. The first and the second watch of the night are done in complete darkness. Mm. But the third watch of the night is when the dawn comes, the light comes up, and we can see what's going on. And so when you understand that the third watch of the night, which is when the Buddha discovered the destruction of the defilements, trumps the first and second watch of the night. Okay. Okay, it trumps them. Okay, so you can think of, in fact, that when the, the Buddha is dealing with past life experiences, he's doing it in a state of darkness, in ignorance, in uh, a belief system. But we can also see it in the sense of um, when one is waking up, we begin to see that I have been manifest things in my life. I've been a butcher, a farmer, a prince, a king, a student, a teacher, all of these various things. One life after another, after another, after another. Thousands of them. Okay. And I didn't have to have a new body. This body kept changing. This body kept being new. So it, And so we can look at it in the sense of the past life experiences is merely giving uh, credence to the fact that I've accumulated a past.
1: Is this... Because um, many of the teachings say that this is something, something of a reality, of a legitimate continuation
0: of... Not... When you say the teachings... Uh, be uh, careful, we're not using the Pali Canon because the number of much of what we believe you got from childhood before you ever got introduced to Buddhism. Much of the child, okay. uh, much of your understanding of Buddhism comes from your childhood uh, accumulation of information.
1: I, I mean, Marcel. So, okay, sorry. You can,
0: can you and, finish. And that the, uh, the way that we are raised is magical. An example of this is, is that those children who were raised in uh, a, uh, an Islamic culture where mommy and daddy and the mosque and everybody in town dresses like Muslims, act like Muslims, talk like Muslims, and think about Muslims, then that child is going to be completely immersed into Islam and Muslims. So that when he grows up, he's going to continue to think like that. Mm. And yet another child is Christian. And so the religion that a person has has a whole lot more to do than how, as to how he raised than to what he thinks once he's an adult. As an adult, we have to, with the Dhamma, to start deconstructing or maybe not deconstructing is the word, a better word is to forget about all of that old stuff and look at what's going on in the present moment. Because this is where our happiness lies. And so the Buddha, when he's talking about the third, the first watch of the night, he may not be talking about, nor uh, do we assume that he is talking about uh, some lifetime that, that he personally had many, many millions of years ago or thousands of years ago. But it is a convenient way of speaking because the people speak that way. Mm. And we know that the Buddha was well-trained in the Brahmins. Okay. I can give you a number of suttas to where he just gives chapter and verse of exactly what their belief systems are But when modern Buddhists read that, especially if they've had a Christian upbringing and background, they they too will believe that Buddha believed that stuff because he knew it. Mm. Where he's reciting that because he wants his audience to have faith that what he does want to teach them, they will be able to grasp. And so he wants them to have confidence, faith, and trust And so he gives them a foundation of what they already know, before then he starts to drag them into the reality. A really good example of that is the sutta that many, many people will point to. that says, oh, the Buddha talks about rebirth here, and he does this, that, and the other thing. And I say, okay, but if you look at the end of the sutta... The Buddha says something very particular about that. He says, therefore, O monks, do not be reborn. Wait a minute. That goes against all of the teachings of rebirth. Because the Buddha is just making the statement, therefore, do not be reborn, means we've got some power over it right here and now. That this idea of being reborn in the future actually pulled all of our power away from us we have no control over it with the statement air er, to our past we uh we own the past the past owns us that's only true up to a particular point in that really um the deep dark past we don't know anything about there is also the four imponderables, and one of the four imponderables is the result of actions. That the Buddha says, you do not know what the result of these actions are going to be. But people who believe in rebirth and reincarnation, they will say, oh, and this happens in in Thailand as well as India. They'll, they'll look at some p- person who has uh, some illness or some, uh, let us say his arm is completely deformed, and they'll say, oh, that is a result of his past life being bad. That statement is both true and false. In some cases, it's true because that child, that beggar that has that deformed arm, went to uh, um, the, the beggar's mafia in India And had his arm deformed intentionally so that he could beg with it. Okay. So in a way, that deformed arm is uh, uh, the result of his past action. But the idea was that he was born with that arm that way, and it's deformed because of his past action before he was born. But we don't have any evidence of that at all. No evidence. So let's stay with what we do have evidence with. Okay. Now there's there's one last point that we'll bring up on this, and that is, is that in sutta number thirty-eight, uh, Sati, son of a fisherman, comes to say that uh, that the self is the result of uh, the consciousness experiencing. Uh, the comma from from the past. Okay. Okay. And the Buddha says, not just, no, you're wrong, but he actually um, puts Sati, son of a fisherman, down. He says, who in the world have you ever heard, where have you ever heard me speak like that? Don't you know that consciousness is dependently arisen? And then he turns to the other monks and he says, what do you think, monks? Does this Sati son of a fisherman have even a shred of wisdom? And everybody's joking around and saying, no, this idiot, he don't know nothing. And so then the Buddha uh, gives the, the talk that consciousness is not that which runs in circles from life to life experiencing the, uh, 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 the result of past actions. That consciousness is dependently arising. An example of that is when you're asleep at night, and then you wake up in the morning, while you were asleep, in deep sleep, where was your consciousness? It wasn't there. Consciousness is dependently arising, and it, and it arises based upon our senses. If you have an eye, that eye can see what it sees as the object, or the rupa, therefore, that creates eye consciousness. If you close your eyes, you don't have eye consciousness. If you're not listening, you don't have your consciousness. That consciousness is dependently arising. That's the main teaching of the Buddha, not the stuff about uh, past lives. But the old past lives. Here's another point. Everyone in our society, whoever came to the teachings of the Buddha, came to the teachings of the Buddha with our own past experiences and stories that we got from our childhood. Okay. Therefore, everyone who comes to the teaching of the Buddha is e- an eternalist, because we were trained as an eternalist. Christianity is a form of eternalism. Once you die, you don't die. You live in heaven. How long do you live in heaven? Well, I'm going to only stay there as long as I enjoy harp music. But after ten thousand years, I'll probably get tired of the stuff and think about hell maybe a better destination, mm. right? And so the idea is is permanency or everlasting, or eternalism, and yet you recognize that the major teaching of the Buddha is anicca, nothing is eternal, everything works. everything is temporary, there's nothing permanent anywhere. Not in physics, not in energy, not in information, not in people, not in animals, not mm. in anything. Nothing is permanent. And yet all religion is based upon the idea that things are permanent. Okay. Basically what's going on is, is that de- at the bottom of wanting things to be permanent is a fear of loss. If things are like they are now, then I'm okay now. But if I lose what I have now, then I will be unhappy. Okay. So this basically boils down to that the entire teachings of reincarnation and rebirth is a salve on the wound of the fear of death, the fear of dying. So when you can get your mind fearless so that you're ready to die, hey, man, I'm ready to go now. You may not be when you're your age, but by my age, you said, man, I'm ready to check out of this old world. I've had enough of this place. Okay. Ready to go. No longer afraid of death. If I'm not afraid of death, then I'm not afraid of what happens after death.
1: Okay. So this is the final uh, thing. Uh, so that it brings to mind, so why make an effort to correct our behaviors our perception if the teaching isn't that there's a continuation what if, it, if the continuation halts then there's no problem then we just die and that's it right is that not is that an inaccurate way of looking Certainly at me it
0: is are you willing then to live until let us say that oh well I'm going to live to 80 years old but after I'm di- after I'm dead at the age of 80 then there is no future after that so why should I bother? to do anything about it now when I'm 20 the Mm. answer is in the form of a question do you really want to suffer for the next 50 years and then die are you going to live out the life of life is shit and then you die that's your whole life story okay or do you want to have a happy joyful satisfied life for as long as it ends and when it's finished there you go Okay. That's your choice. Do you want to be miserable simply because you think that the misery will eventually end when I die? Okay. Why don't you end your misery now? Yeah. <laughs> so in that regard, you could say that in fact the belief in rebirth and reincarnation is dangerous because it prevents us from with those kind of stupid beliefs, it prevents us from actually getting the benefit of the Dhamma and becoming free and joyful right now. Okay. So we miss out on both cases.
1: Okay. I I see I see I see that, um, and I'm sure we'll have more uh, time to talk. I, we've, we've been on uh, for a while. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I just have, it just is, uh, I don't think there's, I see, okay, I'm going to leave it there. We can talk about it another time.
0: <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, Julian Dark, I'm sorry you haven't been talking very much, so you haven't had your questions answered, but I hope that you've gotten some value out of this.
2: Yeah, it was it was interesting. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll ask my questions next time.
0: Okay. So... Let's leave it then with with this. First off, we haven't given a complete answer yet, because I can't. Mm. What I can do is point you in the direction that you need to go so that you can discover these things for yourself. You cannot take my word for it. In fact, uh, that's the whole teachings of the Buddha, that uh, the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao. The Dhamma that I can tell you is not the Dhamma that you have to discover for yourself. You've got to go find these things for yourself. Mm, You've got to recognize for yourself that you are temporary. Everything about you is temporary. And you have to come to that conclusion because you have been told your whole life that something about you is permanent. When I see it, I'll, uh, I'll know. Uh Right. And so one of the things I remember doing this, this actually pissed somebody off when they said, uh, when they said, but I do have a self. And I says, okay, you go at home and you meditate to the point of finding that self. I want you to paint it red, put it in an envelope and mail it to me. Only then will I think of it, of being real. But you got to catch it, paint it red, and mail it to me. That's evidence, right? Sure. When you recognize you've got no evidence for a soul, no evidence for a self, then there's no reason to cling to the belief that there is one. Rather, what we want to say is the value of being reborn in the next life is to salve my wound of wanting to live forever when i know that i'm temporary mm. if i can become free from uh, free from the fear of death then death has no sting if i'm not afraid of death then death has no power at all this is what the whole promise is of christianity is death has no sting it's got no power over me
1: yeah it's i'm i'm equally okay I equally don't want to live forever and I equally don't want to disappear in, into nothing. So I just want to know what's real.
0: But you just did. What? Disappear into nothing. As soon as you stopped talking, you disappeared into nothing. And then you came back. But if something else came back. It wasn't the you that died and disappeared into nothing. There was a brand new moment. I'm going to
1: Okay.
0: You,
2: you've been nothing before. Uh, do you remember what it was like before you were born? Y- no. You don't exactly, um, and it's not too hard to imagine that it's similar after this ends, right?
0: Same thing happens when you're asleep. You nothing.
1: When uh, when I see it, I'll know it. <laughs>
2: well, you'll see it one day,
0: but. There's another way of understanding that, and that is the concept through sunyata, or emptiness. That you have to gain a new kind of skill in perception, and that is the skill to see things that are not there. Okay. How can you do that? How can you see the things that are not there? This is a new kind of skill, to see emptiness, to see things that are not there as not there. We can start with the emptiness of the forest is empty of a town. There's no town in the forest. But when we walk into the town, we don't immediately just think of no no town. We look at the forest as a forest, but we don't appreciate until we think about it and recognize that there is no town here, Mm. okay, so that same thing you can look at that when you are in your own being, you're in your own forest, but there's no town itself in that forest, it's just forest, which means you've got to inspect the forest pretty thoroughly to figure out there's no town here. Okay. That's what we have to do, is not only do you have to make an inspection, but you're looking for something that's not there.
1: The town being the metaphor for the self. Exactly. Yes, okay.
0: There's no self there. What is there? Feelings. What is there? Body. What is there? Perception. What is there? Consciousness. What is there? Memories and the past. What is not there is a self. Hmm.
1: This consciousness one is the trickiest, like, I think.
0: But consciousness is dependently arising. So yes. you begin to watch when you're not conscious. Now that's hard to be. Can you be <laughs> conscious of being not conscious? It would
1: require a shift of what I thought was possible.
0: Precisely. So that's something that to be investigated okay your consciousness needs to be investigated to make sure there is no self there then in fact consciousness is temporary it arises it passes away it arises it passes away and there's nothing permanent in there okay. and you have to recognize that there is nothing permanent there because you can see the arising and the passing and the arising and the passing that there is no forest or excuse me there is no town in the forest
1: It helps. That helps bring up some assumed realities that you know have uh, you know just they're just there that are implied by
0: the uh, the conditions. We call those delusional beliefs. Sure. (laughs) Um, And and that there is that major delusion I am. And that major delusion I am now begins to be permanent if we can delude ourselves into believing that i exist then the next delusion is i will continue to exist forever
1: it's very sticky it feels very but it it doesn't okay i appreciate that perspective Uh. (laughs)
0: all right we're not finished yet
1: <laughs> I know, I know, I and, and know. you're
0: still in your investigation. But yeah, we've already run nearly an um, hour and three quarters. So thank you, thank you for your time. Uh huh. All right, guys. Uh, Julian Dar, do you have anything left to say? Uh, nothing on this topic. All my questions are about
2: completely different stuff. Different thing. Okay. I'll, I'll call you uh, some someday soon.
0: Sure. Yes, you're both okay. welcome. Call when when you want.
2: Okay, and Julia, nice to meet
0: you. You too as well. All right. Okay, guys, see you. Bye-bye.